and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today my guest is Matt Bell, author of Refuse to Be Done, How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts. Benjamin Dreyer, New York Times bestselling author of Dreyer's English, says of Refuse to Be Done, I can't imagine anyone setting pen to paper or fingertips to keyboard who won't want to keep this book permanently close at hand. And I completely agree. I think this book is essential for writers at any stage of writing a novel. A little more about uh, Matt. He is the author, most recently, of the novels Appleseed, a New York Times notable book of 2021, Scrapper, a Michigan notable book, and In the House Upon the Dirt, Between the Lake and the Woods, a finalist for the Young Lions Fiction Award. His stories have appeared in Best American Mystery Stories, Esquire, Tin House, Conjunctions, Fairytale Review, Gulf Coast, and many other publications. A native of Michigan, he now teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. Matt Bell, welcome to A Bookish Home. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. I am a little bit obsessed with this book. (laughs) I (laughs) had been trying to find a book that specifically focused on revision in a helpful way and tried, you know, some different titles that I just didn't feel like were explaining it to me clearly enough. Mm -hmm. And then I was so excited to see this book come out and it has just been so transformational in terms of my understanding of how to go about this process. And I think at any stage of writing, this is going to be so helpful for people. Um, So I'm really excited to dive in. And I just think this is going to be a writing classic. So people should get their orders in and uh, librarians should should get it for their libraries. So can you tell us just a bit about um, the book? And I'm curious, kind of what made you want to take this project on? Sure. Thanks so much. Um, you know, the book, as you know, but just for people who haven't haven't seen it before, uh, is looking at novel writing through the lens of rewriting and revision and kind of divides novel writing into these three. It, it promises three drafts, but immediately says really three stages. Um, and this first draft of generative revision uh, the kind of revision we do to discover the book as we're writing it, a way of sort of studying the material as we're making it. Uh, a second draft focused on narrative revision, really focusing on getting like the plot and the structure of the novel the best it can be. Uh, and then a third draft of polishing revision, where we make the turn from the writer-based version of the book that we, we kind of wrote for ourselves to one that's meant for readers, whether that's friends or agents or editors or whoever, you know, the sort of next audience for our book is. Um, and I think that that sort of mimics my own novel writing process that I've sort of discovered while writing my own books uh, and, and teaching novel writing classes and, and, of course, talking to writer friends and things like that. Um, you know, the real genesis of the book was my own needs. Even I, I wrote two novels before I wrote my first published novel, although those first novels didn't really get revised. I sort of knew they weren't books that were going to be on a shelf one day uh, for various reasons. Uh, and then when I finished the first draft of, of In the House, and this would have been like maybe 2010 or something like that, maybe 2011, um, I kind of had this like pile of pages and I liked it and I was really excited about it. And I also knew it was like very far from being a publishable book, you know, um, and I didn't really know what to do. You know, I, I had an MFA, I, I, you know, an English undergrad, I'd taken tons of workshops. Um, I was publishing short stories by then. Um, but I, I realized I had never really been taught to revise that I had always been expected to, you know, at the end of a workshop, you often turn in a revision for your final project. 
Um, but no one had really taught me how to do it in really practical terms. And when I was writing shorter things, I could just get away with it. You could just kind of brute force your way through it. You could just keep trying things to the story, you know, got accepted by a magazine. But that felt too daunting for, for something longer. Um, so the first versions of, of what became this book are really just the, the process I invented for myself or, or gleaned from interviews or other craft books on how to revise. Uh, but it eventually became a lecture I gave a lot of places, sort of my traveling show, craft lecture at writing workshops and, and things like that. Um, and a couple of years ago, I gave it at the University of Alabama and a uh, professor there, Heidi Lynn Staples, came up afterwards and said, you know, that should be a book, right? And I was like, I did not know that. Maybe I'll write it, <laughs> which was really great. It was sort of that, like uh, that push to like, you know, kind of uh, uh, change it into a new form. And so it's been really great to sort of uh, write it into this sort of more formal version of these ideas. And it's and cool to have people connecting with it like you are. Yeah, I love that. And I know I've I've been following you online and everything. I know it's been going through printing after printing. So I know people are excited to to have it in their hands. And I can so relate to what you're saying. I feel like a lot of attention is paid to the stage of sort of getting out that messy first draft. And, you know, there's people doing NaNoWriMo, um, which I know I've done too, where you're just trying to get the words Same out. Well, and, yeah. yeah. And then you kind of end up with this massive document and it's sort of, yeah, what, what is next? I know that's where I sort of started floundering and why this book has been so helpful. Well, just to kind of go through, I'd love to hear a little bit of, uh, more about the different stages. And I think a lot of what you talk about with that first exploratory draft, um, that first draft is um, really helpful. And one of the things I thought was interesting, talk a little bit about how as you're writing, sometimes there's the um, conception I know I've struggled with of, you know, I want to maybe keep consuming other books while I'm writing fiction and other stories. And I worry, is that going to somehow get in my head and mess with my writing, especially as I'm in those early stages? And you had a kind of a different philosophy on that that I'd love for listeners to hear about, because I thought that was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if this is what I'm talking about, just re you're talking about just redirect me. But I, I think I personally um, want a uh, influence and, and mostly what I want from influence is like a constant stream of like good art coming in that what makes me want to write is is reading really and you know consuming other kinds of story and so if I'm not reading good books I, I my will to write even kind of goes away um so it's it's sort of related for me and I think what what I've learned from my own practice from other writers is what what doesn't work influence wise is when you have like one thing that is the only thing with influencing something like if you um i'm just looking at my bookshelf right now but if you read colson whitehead's harlem shuffle and you're like i'm gonna write a book just like colson whitehead's harlem shuffle and that then like nothing else ever joins that then yeah that influence is going to be in your way um but what i think i see in, in the writers that i think are the most unique who i've gotten to know is that they're voracious readers and they read everything and so they read the, certainly the genres they're writing in, but also other genres and things from other periods and, and things from other um, other languages and translation, reading outside their own sort of subjective identity. And what it all kind of adds up to is that they look very unique on the page because their sort of stew of influence is, is quite a bit broader. Um, and so I think there's like that kind of art life that you bring to your work. Uh, I really think imagination is, is mostly a, a kind of like memory 
um, and your art memory is one of the things you write from. And so the, the broader that can be and the more interesting can be, it seems the better. Um, I, I don't feel too much the idea that like I read something and it's too powerful in my head, uh, especially as it's joined by other things. Um, and I also think like one of the ways you can you, you progress as a writer is to like make your own versions of things you like. Um, I think there's a, a Wittgenstein quote that's something like uh, seeing a beautiful sunset makes you want to paint a beautiful sunset. Um, and I think there's part of that in writing as well. Right. It's the books that we love that make us want to write our own books. Um, and so being in contact with that seems like one of the pleasures of writing. Um, I suppose there are pitfalls to it. If you, someone's voice is just too strong in your head, um, then you have to find a way around that. But for the most part, um, I think I want that. I also would just pick reading over writing if a push came to shove. Um, so for me, there's also like uh, maybe this is just me telling myself a story so I can be a writer and a reader. Because if I yeah, if I had to give up reading novels for the three years I had to write to write a novel, I would just not write novels. I relate to that so much. And when you said that in the book, I was like, yes, me too. I I, I think I want to write because I love reading so much. Yeah. But yes, if I had to choose, I could never give up reading. And yeah, I love that whole idea of having a really varied reading diet and that that is what's going to help um, make it seem unique on the page, having mm -hmm. all those different influences. I think that's so helpful to hear. Well, as kind of you're going along in the process you talk about kind of a, I forget the exact word for it, but sort of taking that early draft and sort of making a short like um, narrative version almost. And um, so that you can kind of see the whole book at once. Could you talk about that a little bit? And I feel like that's one of the things that could sort of be difficult advice to take because I know it's going to be hard to do, but it, it does seem very useful if you can take the time. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So I I have not historically started with an outline before I start not writing. Sometimes I know like very, very little. Um, my second book, especially like I knew like kind of like the setting of the book and like nothing else. I really had to discover it as I went. Um, and one of the, the things that happens when you write without an outline is it is very exploratory. It is a really an interesting way of sort of finding the book as you're writing the book, but it tends not to produce a well-shaped novel. I, I think even if you start with like an outline, the book will change under you anyway. So you, you'll end up with the first draft that has similar issues. Um, and so what I, I come up with is uh, when I have the first draft finished, I then outline the book and I you can do it in different ways. Um, what you're talking about, I, I think is what I call a, a narrative outline, which really means you're writing kind of a summary of the book. Here are the events that happen in the book and you write it in sort of narrative form. Um, you could write it in bullet points. You could do a very traditional like uh, outline we were taught to do in high school with like the Roman numerals and stuff. Um, I, I think I do it often in narrative because it feels more like writing. And so that's enjoyable, uh, but there's no kind of right or wrong way. Uh, and what I'm outlining there is uh, the events that take place during like the prime timeline of the book, what uh, we might call like the time narrated. So not the backstory, not the digressions, not the essayistic parts of the book, but just like the unfolding beats of time. Uh, and the reason to do that is so you can study the structure of the book at scale, like a little model of the book, as opposed to looking at this 300 or 400 or 500 pages of stuff and being like, how does this all work? Which is really just too daunting. Uh, and then I revise that outline into a plan 
for a better draft of the book. So it's easier to move things that way. It's easier to sort of um, describe something working better than that works right now. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of doing this right now for the novel I'm writing. And it's just, again, sort of like really easy to sort of see flaws in the the book in this miniature version that are hard to face in the whole, I think. Um, and then for me, what I've, I've historically done is, is rewrite the book from that draft, um, by which I mean like retype the whole book. Um, and I, I do let myself use stuff from the first draft, but I make myself retype it, like no cutting and pasting, which I really think is the big important rule here that uh, you won't, like cutting and pasting is not revising. You will cut and paste in stuff that's not great, but you won't retype it because it's miserable to like retype a boring scene. You'll be like, this scene is boring. I should write a better version of it. Um, and I, you know, every book I cheat a little bit. And I'm like, that scene was really good in the first draft. I'll just paste it in. And it always ends up being something that causes me trouble later. Um, so for me, the real reason to do this is is not to take up a ton of time or to like make it a misery. It's that um, the voice of the book at the end of the first draft tends to be way better than the voice of the book when you started. You know so much more about the characters. You know so much more about your prose. You know so much more about the setting and the plot and, and sort of what everything means. Um, and so now you're writing, uh, as Amy Tan says, like in the voice of all that happened. And my experience has been like that's that second draft gets so much better that for me, I, I don't think I'll ever skip it. I mean, maybe one day I'll write like a first draft that's like, uh, Faulkner writing as they dying and it's done in six weeks and you go, that's great. I'm done. Print it. Um, but uh, so far that hasn't happened <laughs> and I don't think I'm going to count on it. Um, so for me, this has been a, a way of getting to like the best version of the book, um, but it won't be for everybody. Although I do think a lot of writers um, do this or do a version of it. Um, and the short version is really like when in doubt, rewrite, don't revise, that it's easier to rewrite something better than it is to like tinker it into a good draft. And so I think that a little bit of boldness to rewrite goes a long way, even if you don't do it to a whole draft. Yeah, it's it was um, hard to read and and go, oh, no, is that really what I have to do? But <laughs> then I just appreciated how practical it is because it is very tempting to just tinker. It's sort of like, where do you even start with trying to like move all this around? Mm -hmm. And it is difficult advice to take, but I've, I've kind of started with it. And I do think it's really helpful because I think I completely fall into that. I'm sure other listeners do too as well, where you do just kind of start copying and pasting and, oh, maybe I'll leave that in. And I don't mm -hmm. really want to cut that. And, and I know you mentioned too, kind of having like a, like you don't necessarily have to do it from scratch. Like you can have the the first draft kind of up as reference and then mm -hmm. kind of be, be rewriting. But, um, and I mean, I guess if you were using a typewriter or something back in the day, you would have had to do it that way. So, you know, it's funny. Um, I never use that metaphor because I just don't think about being on a typewriter very much, but obviously that's the case, right? That like you sort of like you, you would retype the whole book if you wanted to make changes. Yeah, um, you have to, but <laughs> I think if you're a person who handwrites, you're naturally doing this all the time too. Like there's sort of, you know, like the, you, you probably don't type in handwritten drafts exactly the way they're written. You know, I, I saw a friend of mine joking on, I did, they typed in 12 pages of handwritten notes and got like 300 words out of them, you know, and he's like, well, so that was a good revision day. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, well, I, that's, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, that's one of the things I appreciate so much about 
your book itself, like as I was reading, I could really feel that you had um, undergone this. I mean, I know it's not a novel, but undergone it for this book just because it felt so, um, it felt like every word had earned its place Mm. so well. Like I could just kind of imagine you like slicing at it until it got like just to the absolute most important, helpful parts. And that's something I appreciate so much. You know, if you're writing you don't want to sort of spend too much time reading, you know, a thousand page craft book. <laughs> Everything in here is so useful. I almost gave up underlining and marking things because I felt like I was doing it to the whole book. But um, <laughs> I just felt like that was so helpful. And um, all the maybe you can talk about this a little bit, but all the examples you have when you go on to that third draft of really kind of making every word earn its keep and like figuring out what to trim. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Like I loved, um, Oh, something words that are the weasel word. Weasel words. words. Yeah. yeah. Things like that. Save and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, it is again, that sort of, uh, there's that place where the book is readable and, and it can, and you can still go farther and you can still make it like as tight as possible. And really that, that third draft phase, and doing all these sort of little operations on the book or, or going through and doing all these individual passes where you focus on individual things for me often is the place where the book tightens up a lot and suddenly looks like books on the shelf. Look, you know, you sort of have that like, Oh, now my sentences feel like sentences in published books, even though that's one of the things I care about most all the way through. It's just, it's, it's putting that last bit of pressure on it. Um, the weasel words thing is interesting. It's just this list of, of words that are nothing's wrong with them they're not grammatically incorrect they're not they're not even really like bad writing they're just like things that sometimes get in the way of a more interesting sentence or or a more concise sentence um and so they're they're really in the book is just a list of them to go through and look for throughout the manuscript um i do it in kind of this really like um i turn on track changes and i'll put like control f and uh and i look for let's say like the word suddenly which is often just a a little bit of false drama you either don't everything in a book happens suddenly to the reader right so like you usually kind of don't need it or or there's a more interesting way to write the sentence and i'll just do like a control find and i'll delete all the suddenlies and then i'll go through and you can see them in track changes and i'll try to like adjust the sentence so i don't need it um and and you know with each of those things in the book i it's just another way of re-entering the prose kind of after you think you're done with it uh, because it gets really hard to look at. It gets really hard to read your own prose in an objective way. And so it's just uh, mechanics to sort of get us back in it. Um, but I actually I end up finding a lot of that really pleasing. It feels like sort of a game. Like when I'm doing that part of the book, I keep a list of all those words and like how many of them there were, how many are there after I'm done. And it's interesting to sort of uh, to make it playful as opposed to like this drudgery you're doing late in the process. Um, I think uh, a lot of what this is doing is is tightening the book. It's, it's certainly shortening the book. The book always gets shorter in that third phase. The end of the second draft for me is always like the longest version of the book. Um, and I think a thing I'm really obsessed with, and it talks a little bit about this in the book, about like cutting everything you don't need, everything you can kind of live without. And uh, Hemingway's like sort of famous iceberg theory, you know, that when you read a story or read a novel, you're only reading like 10% of the story. The rest of it is hidden from you under the water, you know? Uh, and I think when I was younger, I thought that was just like, you were just like a genius, right? You just intuited the other 90% of it when you were writing. And I think what I've learned is you, you make the whole iceberg and then you get rid of most of it. Um, and that a lot of the things you're writing, 
uh, are, are really for you, these sort of explanations or pieces of backstory are like you explaining the book to yourself as you're writing it, or there a, a version of your own experience of reading your novel as you're writing it. I think a lot of backstory in books is really like you inventing memories for the characters so you know who they are, but the memories don't have to stay in the book. The characters act from them, and then the reader kind of feels that they're real people with real memories. And I, I think there's something really interesting about finding the way to sort of carve out the part of the book that doesn't need to be on the page, but will still be felt by the reader because it was felt by you while you're making it. Um, I'm, I'm very, very fascinated in that sort of um, late stage adjustment to the book. Yeah, I thought that perspective was so interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way before. And there's a quote in there about like a something like a book that was 600 pages mm. to start that goes down to 200 pages you know, it's the result of all those pages and um, you don't yeah. see them, but they're there. I think that's so helpful. Like what you cut isn't wasted. It's um, it's already kind of slipped its way into the book and the characters and the reader's experience. I think that's so helpful. I think um, that's absolutely true. You know, in my own books, and I, if I flip through like a published novel, I can often like feel that material. I can kind of see where it was, right? You know, and you sort of have that um no one's ever read one of my books and no one's read anyone's book and been like, I wish there was more backstory in this, uh, you know, but uh, but I can totally see where it used to be or see where it felt or be like, oh, this is a character thinking about that scene I wrote that I, I cut out. You know, um, I think there's something really it's kind of like, you know, the person better than the, the reader will, but the reader will get it, you know. Uh, yeah. But I think that's it's an interesting thing to sort of learn. Uh, my own novel writing students are obsessed in early drafts so having to prove everything about a character like they're sort of like how are the person believes they're like this if they haven't like seen four scenes where it, where it happens and i'm like no you can just tell them you know it's like <laughs> like this person's angry you don't have to like prove they're angry for 100 pages you know but you might need to do it to prove it to yourself you might need to really understand their particular anger their particular sadness or their particular you know whatever um but the reader will will accept your assertions in the early pages of the novel um, and I think that's, uh, we know that as readers, we don't actually need to see like tons of stuff to believe a character is the way they are. Um, but I think we have to make it sometimes as novelists. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, well, one of the things I also really liked about the book, and we've mentioned some of the quotes, you weave in a lot of experiences of, um, other authors and their perspective on revising and craft. And it just got me wondering sort of about, sort of the research you did for the mm. book and kind of who has helped or inspired you as you've kind of tried to master the novel writing process for yourself. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I'm constantly uh, reading other writers and craft essays or interviews or, you know, I, I certainly have my own shelf full of craft books. Um, when I started teaching full time, I was like, I'm going to need more examples of things. <laughs> I think I, I did my real craft reading as a young teacher rather than maybe as a young writer. Um, but I, I, uh, I used to to settle into the desk every day when I sat down to write. I would look up a, an interview or read an essay or a, a maybe even a, a criticism of like um, of writers I was thinking about or I was really interested at the time. Um, and it was partly just a way of like settling to the desk. And I, I keep a commonplace book. Uh, I keep two of them. I mean, they're really just word documents, but they're commonplace books in, in that way of, uh, you know, it's a place you put everything. Um, and I have one for just like quotes from fiction that I really like, you know, like a, pieces of prose that I, I find really interesting. I retype into that one. And then I have another one 
that I, I keep quotes about writing and, you know, kind of craft quotes. Um, and so when I used to read all those interviews and, and craft essays, my sort of rule was I'd read one every day as I was sitting down at the desk and I would read until something did that like aha moment. And then I would put it in my commonplace book and then I would go write. Um, so I have this enormous document of, of craft quotes that I've been keeping for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, um, which obviously was a really nice thing to sort of draw on. It's uh, very useful to me as a teacher, of course, and students working on something very particular. And you're like, oh, what do I have about that? You know, um, but I think that kind of thing is a really useful practice for maybe not even just writers, but readers to keep. It's another kind of journaling your reading process. You know, like these are the things that moved me in the books I was reading. Um, and just all those little snippets of quotes add up to some version of your sort of autobiography as a reader, your autobiography as a thinker. Um, but I, I think that, so that was part of it. There were things where I think I set out to find like specific examples, but um, but a lot of the examples in the book are are the things that are my go-to examples in my brain from from sort of teaching or from from my own sort of study. Um, it's always really wonderful when you find a way someone does something in a book and it kind of sticks with you and you, you continue to try to figure it out. Uh, I write a, a, a Substack newsletter once a month on, on writing craft. And often the thing I write about that month is just something that's been like kicking around in my head. I'm like, how did that person do this? Or how does this work in this book? You know? Um, and so a lot of that added up to the examples and, and refused to be done as well. Uh, I do write a lot of exercises for my creative writing students, and I, I try as much as I can to write them uniquely for each class, sort of based out of the things we've been reading or the things we've been talking about. Um, and one of the reasons to do that is is just to like incorporate like the kind of freshest uh, contact with other writers' ideas and other writers' fiction that I can into our practice, um, which seems like an exciting part of, again, it's a kind of exciting part of being a writer and a reader. You know, it's a way of feeling like you're working in conversation with other people all the time while you're writing, which, you know, writing, as you know, is so lonely. Even being a reader can be kind of lonely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that way of sort of always thinking with and thinking through and thinking around and, and occasionally against other people is one of the ways that we feel uh, that we're participating with all these books on our shelves. That's great. And I I really like the idea of keeping it so easily at your fingertips as opposed to, you know, I've got this book marked up over here Mm -hmm. and, you know, this magazine article about writing highlighted over here and just kind of having all the best pieces together. And yeah, I imagine that would have been so useful for, for the book. So I need to start those documents. Yeah, Um, They're worth keeping. They're a lot of fun to, to sort of go back through and be like, you just see, you just see your interest over time, you know? Yeah. I love that idea of your autobiography as a reader and a writer. That's very cool. Well, speaking of of reading, I always love to hear what authors have been reading. Is there anything you want to recommend to listeners? Yeah, uh, I just yesterday finished uh, a new novella by Nicola Griffith called Spear. That's uh, kind of a, a, a queer Arthurian retelling. Really fantastic. I really hit that sort of like adventure spot for me. It's also like beautifully written. Like I could I could think about Griffith's sentences for a long time. Um, read a, a novel, uh, End of the World House by Adrian Selt that came out uh, maybe last month. Uh, I really love Adrian, love Adrian's work. Um, and uh, it's kind of a time loop friendship novel set at least partly in the Louvre in, in Paris, uh, which is really great. Um, and maybe I'll also say a novel by Antoine Wilson called Mouth to Mouth that came out this year. 
that uh, was maybe one of the like the sort of pure enjoyment novels I've read in a while. Um, that sort of it's kind of a I guess maybe kind of a literary thriller, but the whole novel takes place over a re really short period of time where characters like telling a story in an airport lounge, and it has that absolutely sort of gripping feel of like a person sits down to you and tells you like a super compelling story, you know, um, which is, is just a pleasure to sort of be in contact with that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, those are three I've read recently. That I liked quite a bit. Oh, great. And I'll, I'll definitely link to all of those. We'll have to check them out. And lastly, I just wanted to ask, you know, I'm sure, I mean, the book has been so well received. I know um, people like me are going to constantly have it on their desk. And I'm just wondering um, if you think you might do another craft book, like on another aspect of the writing process, or if it's, or if you kind of feel like, you know, you've done that and you just kind of want to keep going with your fiction now. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, you know, the the newsletter I write, the craft essays that I've written for that are already longer than Refuse to Be Done is. So it's possible <laughs> I've already written another one. Um, and so maybe that gets put together someday. Um, I certainly wouldn't be opposed to it. Uh, for whatever reason, I've been on uh, a little bit of a cycle where I write uh, a novel, then a short nonfiction book, then a novel, then a short nonfiction book. Um, and uh, so it's possible there's another one sort of waiting for me after this this novel. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's if it's if there was something that felt equally useful uh, or or was worth putting together that way, I would, certainly wouldn't be opposed to it. Um, it has been really exciting to see uh, the book be useful to people and, and people to be excited about it and to really feel that like. Um, helping other people find the sort of joy in their their own writing and and new ways to get back into projects that matter to them. Um, that's really great. And it is such a different uh, experience with readers as opposed to like the novels, right? Which, you know, I, I've been very lucky to have great readers for my books too, but it, it is a very different kind of interaction with this book. And that's been a real pleasure. Um, and so I, I feel really grateful to have that kind of response to it. I'm really glad it's something that you've enjoyed and has been useful. And I'm grateful to you for sharing it with your listeners. Oh, of course. I kind of imagine it as the start of a, a series, a craft, a craft series. So I'm just going to hope that. that <laughs> I that should have given it a better title. Like refuse to be done again is going to be like, it's going to get really, it's going to be sticky fast, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We'll read whatever yeah. it's titled. Um, well, and then just lastly, I wanted to ask, what um, could you just tell us about the the novel that's up next? Yeah, I'm writing. Uh, I can say really briefly. I'm writing a, a I think a science fiction novel set in on like another uh, another world, so a fully invented world, which I haven't done before. Um, at least not in like outside of like very short things. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. So like that sort of pure invention from the ground up is is an interesting sort of task. Um, I may be two years into it, so I'm sort of refuse to be done language. I'm in like a late second draft of the book, uh, but it's going really well. It's been a lot of fun. Um, it's been really great. I, I started it uh, maybe a couple months before the pandemic began, and it's been great to have a place to go during this time. I think um, really trying to stay in touch with with similar ideas about like kind of wonder and abundance and making like uh, an, an interesting, you know, a place that interests me and a place that sort of lights up my imagination and hopes that it will do the same for other people. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll um, definitely look out for, for future books and I'll link to um, Appleseed and your other titles. And again, yeah, I hope that readers pick up their own copy of Refuse to be Done. And um, it's definitely essential for librarians to add it to their shelves, teachers. Um, I just think this is 
definitely a writing classic in the making and everybody needs to have a copy. So Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and thank you for um, the book. It's just been so helpful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, A Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports a bookish home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash a bookish home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.